Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the life and work of the Austrian mystic Rudolf Steiner. With me is Gary Lachman. Gary is the author of a wonderful book about Rudolf Steiner called An Introduction to His Life and Work. Gary, incidentally, is an American living in London, and he is the author of nearly 20 other books, all dealing with subjects of great fascination to me, esoteric culture. And uh, I expect to be doing many more interviews with him. This is our first interview. We did it via Skype, and I am now going to switch over to the Skype video. Uh, welcome, Gary. It's a pleasure to be with you, uh, and I look forward to uh, this being the first of quite a number of interviews we can do together because uh, you've really created a uh, considerable uh, volume of uh, work and research regarding es esoteric traditions, and I, I think Rudolf Steiner is a very good person to start with, and uh, your book, You Make a Point, of, of noting that while uh, Steiner seems to be quite a creative genius in the mystical arena, uh, he got, you might say, a late start in life. Mm -hmm. It's true. Well, thank you for having, having me on the show. Uh, and it's a pleasure and an honor uh, to be here. But yeah, Steiner, well, he got a late start as Rudolf Steiner, sort of the esoteric uh, teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't start doing that until uh, around, 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 around 40 so in a way, he he kind of exemplifies uh, this idea of the midlife crisis, and um, he actually does exemplify uh, this a theory of something called the creative illness that you go through in a certain midlife, and then you go through this psychological change. You emerge, uh, well, characters like Jung and Steiner and Swedenborg with the whole kind of teaching and all that. But prior to becoming uh, known as a esoteric or a spiritual scientist as uh, he called himself. Uh, he was a Goethe scholar. Uh, he was a German philosopher. Uh, he edited uh, literary magazines in Berlin and Vienna, uh, not very su successfully, but uh, something he did. And at one point, uh, just before he sort of began his career as an esoteric uh, teacher, he was lecturing to just about anyone on mm -hmm. just about anything uh in in germany because he was one of these fantastic uh polymaths of the old kind of central european school well it seemed to me as i was reading through your fascinating biography that he uh was notably unsuccessful in in his early <laughs> life uh, it, you know it looked like he his career might amount to nothing well, he had some early success in the sense that he was, uh, as a young uh, man in his 20s, he was offered uh, the job of editing 
the scientific writing of the uh, German uh, poet and dramatist, uh, novelist, uh, Goethe, uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Probably uh, the greatest literary figure right. in all of uh, German history. Yeah, he's pro- he's, he would be sort of like Germany's Shakespeare or Italy's Dante. I mean, he's up there in the top A-list. He's never really translated that well into English. People know who he is, and we know about Faust, but we don't really... I'm aware of why Goethe is as important as he is. But among many other things, he, again, he was one of these polymath, one mm-hmm. of these Renaissance figures. Uh, I said he was a poet, dramatist, novelist, but he was also a scientist. Uh, he wrote about geology. He wrote about um, anatomy. Uh, he was an early evolutionist uh, before Darwin. and um, But he also wrote a great deal about uh, botany mm-hmm. and, and, and plant metamorphosis and things of this sort. And Goethe thought this was um, pretty much his most important work, was all the scientific work uh, that he did. Uh, but he was one of the few who had that opinion. Uh, the literary figures of the time thought it was this kind of, uh, you know, excusable excess in, in, in the great master. And the scientists, they forgave him for it because he was Goethe, but they thought it was just sort of nonsense what he was writing. Uh, but Steiner, uh, who loved Goethe, uh, Faust was uh, one of the great... Uh, books of his, his early life that really moved him, uh, he jumped at the chance. Um, he was basically you know, uh, a young man uh, needing to make a name for himself. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote my biography of Steiner is that if you go to read anything about him, his life, you, it's, it's usually written by uh, devotees. And you, you get this picture of, you know, from early on, he knew his mission and all that kind of thing and where he was going and everything was a step in that way. But actually, like everybody else, as you say, he sort of looked around and tried to find a place for himself. Uh, and this was a golden opportunity for him at that time. Mm-hmm. So he jumped at the chance. He, he went to Weimar. Uh, where Goethe's archive was, and he edited all of these um, scientific writings. Um, probably the most important one was what he called uh, the Metamorphosis of Plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goethe um, writes about in um, his account of his uh, journey to uh, Italy in the 1800s. He writes about being in Palermo and going to the botanical gardens. And it was there that he discovered what he called the Erflanze, and that's a fantastic German word that means sort of the primal plant. Very sort important of, concept. Uh, for absolutely Steiner. very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this, uh, absolutely, and this is something that it was neither physical nor just an idea. It was somewhere in between. It was some kind of reality that was perceived through the imagination, the trained imagination. Mm-hmm. And it was precisely this that, that struck Steiner. Because up until then, um, or since he was a child, Steiner was had lots of what we would call psychic experiences. Yes. Uh, he tells a very famous story in one of his lectures uh, that uh, when he was a young boy, um, he was being educated by his father, and his father was uh, sort of a station master on one of the early railways in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And Steiner had an idyllic childhood. He grew up uh, in the first early years uh, out in the midst of nature and all that. And um, he became fascinated with... Uh, he, he, he was able to perceive nature spirits and things of that sort. But he also tells a story of how one day uh, when he was in the station master's um, you know, place there, um, he saw this woman walk into the room and say to him, you know, you must help me now and, and later in life. And he didn't know who she was. And then she promptly walked into the stove and then just disappeared. It was a vision. It was a spirit mm-hmm. of some kind. And he later found out that um, it turned out to be uh, the sister of, of his father who had um, committed suicide in town. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm mentioning this to say that Steiner had a kind of um, 
many, many experiences of having these kinds of visions and, and, and this kind of inner world. And then when he came across Goethe writing about it in the scientific way, it made him understand, like, this is something that doesn't have to happen haphazard. It's something that can be trained, something we can learn how to do. And that was sort of in the background for him for the next 20 years. He didn't really talk about that so much. What he did do is he got these ideas across by writing several books about Goethe, about Goethe's view of the world. Mm -hmm. And if you know intellectual history at this time, this is um, sort of the late 19th century, Goethe's view of the world was not uh, it was no longer as popular or as important or anything like that. It was sort of the rise of scientific materialism and reductive sort of science. And it was precisely against that that Steiner developed uh, Goethe's ideas. Goethe was what we would call a romantic. Well, he he's practically invented German romanticism with his uh, early novel uh, called The Sorrows of Young Werther. Mm-hmm. And this supposedly triggered off a rash of suicides. Uh, across the continent because it's a story of unrequited love and Werther is this very romantic uh, tragic uh, poetic figure who is always gushing going off into these ecstatic uh, states uh, with with nature and and, you know the clouds and the mountains and all this kind of thing and you know for us who we spend lots of money to go out of our way to go find these remote parts of nature this was absolutely mad for the time this was nobody understood what this was about nobody saw nature in this way this is why people like steiner and people like owen barfield who is one of the great uh, sort of expositors of steiner's work they basically say that the nature that we experience today what we understand as nature was practically invented by the romantics mm. in, in the late 18th century because before that you know people didn't go out of their way to go to mountains or go to the forest or go to these you know wild places they they, they just stayed away from that that was the wilderness that was you know where things weren't civilized and so goethe was one of the early ones who he found this terrific expansion of the soul by by contemplating mm-hmm. the natural world and all that and so he goethe was a character who does that but uh, this woman he falls in love with, she she rejects him, and in the end he basically sort of blows his brains out and all that. And this 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 wave of romantic passion for love and for nature across Europe. But then Goethe, being who he was, he quickly outgrew this and sort of wrote himself out of it and became this more Olympian kind of classical kind of figure. Now I'm very interested in the concept of the Urflanz that you mentioned uh, before because I I know it had a deep impact on Steiner and. My understanding is that what, what Goethe was uh, intending is that the archetypes that form the essence of his poetry are essentially identical to the um, archetypal or original forms that are the basis of nature. Yes, yes. I mean, Goethe said art is basically doing what nature does, but a little bit more. Um, and and what uh, we... Well, truth for Goethe is this meeting place between um, sort of the laws of the inner world and the laws of the outer world. Mm -hmm. And when the two come together, this is when truth emerges for Goethe. And this was the kind of science he was trying to get across in an age when what was going on in the inner world was completely, you know, rejected. In fact, you had to get rid of that Mm -hmm. because that was that was sort of, you know, Mess, messing up this nice, neat, objective world out there that we can observe through a, a plate glass. And for Goethe, the whole idea was to observe with the same kind of passion, let's say, or uh, the same kind of uh, warmth. This is a word that Steiner carried over here, the warmth mm-hmm. of the soul when you're, when you're observing something. And it, it, what 
it will respond. What you're observing to will respond to that, and it will reveal its secrets to you. And there was a kind of inner harmony between what was out in the outer world and what was inside, and Goethe was trying to find that, and he found it in many different ways. There's a famous story um, when he was traveling, and he was in Strasbourg, which was a city that's always sort of in between being either in France or in Germany Mm. uh, for, for centuries. And the famous cathedral was was uh, just been or still being built or was about to be finished. And again, Goethe was a man of many many interests, and he studied this cathedral, which was up until you know a century or so later the tallest building in Europe. Mm. And he was studying it from all different sides and different perspectives and inside and out. And then later on, the conversation about it, he remarked that um, there must have been a change in the in the architect's original idea, the, the original design of the building. And this was not something that sort of everyone knew, but someone who he was conversing with knew this. And he said, how could you tell? How, how did you know that this was happening? And he said, well, the, the cathedral itself told me. Mm-hmm. And as he observed it with this kind of warmth and this kind of intensity or intention, mm-hmm. uh, he could see where it was going in a certain place up to one spot and then it changed. And he could see where the original tension, it would have done something or other. I don't remember exactly what it was. But again, this was a way of putting himself inside what he was observing mm-hmm. and harmonizing his own kind of inner being with its being and the truth would come out between the two and this is something that steiner took and and basically ran with it mm-hmm. because what Goethe is talking about this earth lanza or this this other earth phenomena which is like you say it's a kind of archetype it's it's not a jungian archetype it's not a platonic idea it's somewhere it inhabits the realm that Henri corbin would later christen the imaginal mm-hmm. this is, it's not the imaginary yeah. It's, it's it's a reality that's in between the physical and 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 the abstract. Well, that we we can we can enter into with our imagination. Uh, it's a very important concept uh, worth people contemplating. But in oh, addition, in addition to being a Goethe scholar, Steiner was one of the early scholars digging into the uh, Nietzsche archives. I think even at a time Nietzsche is now regarded as one of the great philosophers of the 19th uh, century, early 20th century. But at the time, he was relatively unknown, uh, I think, when Steiner uh, began exploring his ideas. Hmm. Well, I mean, um, Nietzsche went mad in the late 1880s. And from about 1888, 1889 on until about 1900 when he died, he was was insane. Um, He had... uh, uh, basically, more it's, it was it, it was from syphilis. This was what was yeah. the most the most uh, recognized sort of theory. And um, sadly, he's one of these. Tra- talk about the romantics. I mean, he's one of these tragic romantic figures that uh, it wasn't only until after his death that his ideas started to become more widely known and accepted. Uh, while he was alive, one or two people knew about him, but he literally was the loneliest man in the world at the time. And but by the time Steiner met him. And I and I say met because they said when he was introduced to Nietzsche, Nietzsche was completely out of his mind. Um, it's about 1895. His his ideas had started to, you know, disseminate out into uh, the world, and he was he was getting this recognition that he should have had when he was sane. And it's sad that at the time Nietzsche was more or less in the care of his sister, mm-hmm. uh, who was. A, a, out-and-out anti-Semite. I mean, it was the last person in the world who should have had control over Nietzsche's uh, books and everything after his life. And that's a whole incredible story in the history of ideas. But what she would do is that she she would wrap him in a toga and sort of place Nietzsche by the window. And he he 
basically it was just crazy and he would just be gazing out you know i guess he was in a catatonic state more or less catatonic state or he would he would you know have fits and all this kind of thing but she would and then she would bring important people in and introduce her her famous brother the philosopher to them so Mm. but she she basically um headhunted steiner because because of his um notoriety in doing the Goethe archives mm. and, and she wanted to do a similar Nietzsche archive as the Goethe archive and so she basically you know approached him and asked him to come and he came and he and he met Nietzsche and he tells of you know, this kind of psychic experience he has sitting next to Nietzsche and seeing the kind of vision of him in his soul state and all that kind of thing which I tell you I say in the book if, if you're familiar with Nietzsche and and what Steiner says you would think Nietzsche would be sort of turning over in his grave because it was very kind of uh, a, a very how should we say it uh, solemn a kind of solemn way that Nietzsche wouldn't have uh, appreciated but mm. Steiner himself had this remarkable facility uh, again it's his power to put himself into the other's place and he wrote this fantastic book about Nietzsche, mm-hmm. Nietzsche philosopher of freedom or fighter for freedom. Yeah. And even though he disagreed with Nietzsche's, in the long run, materialist view, because Nietzsche denied the reality of a spiritual world and all that kind of thing. Um, he had good reasons for doing it within his philosophy. Um, can't go into that now. But Steiner could understand Nietzsche's, the, the positive side, his, 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 uh, his you know, his, uh, it, obsession with freedom and, and free thought and, and, you know, casting off the old outmoded ideas and things of that sort. So even though he disagreed with him, he wrote a book that's an excellent introduction to his ideas. Uh, but in the long run, he didn't get the job of, of the Steiner archive because uh, he realized that Elizabeth Foster uh, Nietzsche, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, the Nietzsche, oh, the Steiner archives, those were on their way, <laughs> the Steiner archives. He didn't get the job of the Nietzsche archives because he in the long run, had an argument with his sister because he realized that, you know, she she, she was, uh, you know, she, she didn't know the first thing about Nietzsche's philosophy and she realized she couldn't work with work with her. Mm-hmm. Well, the, I, I gather that his book, Nietzsche, Philosophy, uh, Philosopher of Freedom, was really Steiner's philosophy of freedom, uh, actually. It's the philosophical basis for all of his later work. And I, I gather that for him, freedom meant the, the freedom of the soul to... Uh, explore realms that we now associate with clairvoyance and uh, hmm. mysticism and the paranormal. That's where Steiner was heading, but uh, it, it never became obvious until he developed an association with the theosophists. No, this was true. Uh, as I said, Steiner was uh, lecturing um, in, in uh, Berlin uh, to Marxists. He was lecturing. I mean, what he was doing is he had, he had his sort of basic you know philosophy was his german idealism and it's sort of you know the reality of the soul reality of the spirit mind you know consciousness mm-hmm. is paramount the material world is sort of secondary and so on and so on and this had fallen very much out of fashion but um he, he was how should we say he was, he was kind of a gentle saboteur because he was able in the context of doing a lecture on marx and he he, he knew marx back and forth, um, just like you knew Kant and Hegel and Lessing and everybody else. And he would gently introduce kind of little inconsistencies or contradictions or something that would lead the audience to go to question some of the ideas. He wasn't, instead of, you know, uh, out and out kind of arguing against Marx and sort of, mm-hmm. you know, arguing for or idealistic vision, he would sort of lead the audience, as good teachers do, mm-hmm. for them to question it and all that. And uh, he, he wrote a book of his own called Philosophy of Freedom. Which has come out in different translations at different times. Uh, the title uh, there was originally it was philosophy of spiritual activity, 
And this is one in which Steiner was trying to establish that the I, das Ich, was an irreducible, you know, reality. Mm-hmm. You, you couldn't reduce the I to, to something else. And this was, again, this was in opposition to all the materialist philosophy that, which still today is mm-hmm. trying to reduce our sense of I to, you know, something going on in the brain or on a molecular level or something like that. And Steiner came up with a very rigorous uh, and actually, um, how should we say it? activating philosophy. I mean, what I say in the book is the process of reading his book, The Philosophy of Freedom, it produces the very kind of state of the sense of an intense sense of your eye that mm-hmm. he's arguing for, because you become actively involved in, in the argument. And, and you, in that, you become aware of your own inner world as an activity. And that was sort of the first thing he wanted to establish. He wanted to establish the inner world as, as, a, as a realm of free activity free creative activity. It can't mm-hmm. be reduced to other things like that. But then, as you say, um, he was invited to lecture to the theosophists. And originally, he, he, he had read um, uh, A.P. Sennett's book, Esoteric Buddhism, which was the book that really got Madame Blavatsky across to uh, lots of people. Uh, it, it, it was a real kind of, you know, uh, simplified version of, of Blavatsky's whole um, kind of thing. Madame Blavatsky is uh, one of the founders of the Theosophical Society, late 19th century, probably the most important esoteric or well, magical. Well, I, I would love to do a separate in interview history. with you about her. Well, we cause... could do that, yeah. Yeah, I've written a book on her, too. I know. Uh, and um, But um, Steiner was first turned off because he, he wasn't particularly interested in the Indian, the, the Eastern kind of thing. He was very much in the Western tradition. He, he, he wanted to... When he when he came out as it were as a spiritual teacher, what he wanted to do was do a Christian Rosicrucian kind of Gnostic Hermetic, the whole Western kind of mm-hmm. tradition. So she wasn't really interested in the. But although he did adopt it because he was there again, this was something that he was able to do. I mean, the 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 early and great um, occult historian James Webb, uh, who wrote in the 70s, um, he said that Steiner basically joined the Theosophical Society in order to take it over. Because he, he, what he needed was a platform, and he increasingly saw himself as, you know, this kind of world teacher. And he wanted to he, here, here already you had a whole system, a whole platform, a whole network, network, and he was going to take it over. But he came into clashes with with Annie Besson. But he, but but it, it, in his early books, he does use a lot of theosophical language. You can mm-hmm. tell. But then there's a change in about 1912 mm-hmm. or something like that. He's kind of moves away from a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when you talked about reading his book on the philosophy of freedom and how the book itself seemed to um, enable you to enter into the state of consciousness that Steiner was describing, I, I recall in my youth, I was exposed to Steiner at about the age of 21 and it had a, a big impact on me at that time. And I I started by reading one of his classic books, uh, Knowledge of Higher Worlds and its oh. attainment. Uh, and I remember now in that book, he actually said, just reading the book is going to change you. That's true. Well, I think when you, again, what he's trying to do fundamentally is is get you to feel your eye, mm-hmm. your inner world as, as, as an activity, as something that's something you do rather than something you have. Mm-hmm. It's to get away from the pet, the, the passive, because that's what we, and then that's the next step. I mean, he's arguing against the Cartesian idea that consciousness is a reflection of the world outside mm-hmm. or against John Locke's contention that there's nothing in the mind that didn't get there first through the senses. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. what, so I'm saying we're born or, our, 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 our heads are sort of like empty, empty apartments and we have to 
go to Ikea and buy a bunch of stuff and bring it. Oh, now we've got a nice flat or something like that. And Stein is saying, no, it's actually furnished already. And yeah. it's furnished with the Ur, Ur phenomena. It's furnished with the archetypes. It's furnished with these spiritual realities that we come into the world. Uh, and that that's what he generally starts to move towards. You know, I recall... Uh being very moved when he he described every single thought as a spiritual entity. Exactly. I said, remarkable, because one of the earliest, uh, along with this vision he had of the women walking into the, you know, the the station and then seeing the nature spirits out in the mountains and woods, um, he, uh, mathematics had an incredible impression on him. Um, Much like, Bertrand Russell, and but the, the the response is very different. I mean, Bertrand Russell was very young. I don't know how old he was, and he read through Euclid, you know, all that when he was five or six or something. But Steiner also came upon mathematics, and what it meant for him was that ah, this uh, basically you're saying the experiencing I'm having about having this inner world, perceiving these inner realities, this is about that, and in the sense that mathematical realities are something that we can perceive with, without having any contact with the outer world you you can understand what a triangle is without having to have an actual triangle and any actual triangle that you will encounter in the world and any triangle that you and i might be thinking of now for steiner it's the same triangle Mm. this is a kind of platonic reality that through mathematics he felt so this was this was a spiritual reality and he, he i mean he he does talk for us in a rather overblown sometimes or kind of purple language but he does talk about the the inner world was not just a place where thoughts just kind of came up. It was sort of this kind of inner landscape where s- spiritual soul beings could could emerge. And mm-hmm. he was numbers for him were, were like that. And thoughts were like you say, thoughts were like flowers and trees and things growing, you know, inside. You know? Mm-hmm. And and of course he seems to be squarely uh, from your description in the Pythagorean and Platonic tradition here. Oh yeah, I mean very much. He's very much in the Western tradition. I mean, yeah. he'll, and he'll later give lectures on how people like Pythagoras and Plato, how they, their place in the tradition from his mm-hmm. point of view of this kind of spiritual history, mm-hmm. because he takes over from theosophy, the idea that, um, you know, there were not only were there different civilizations before ours, you know, Atlantis and Lemuria, the earth itself was in a different kind of incarnation mm-hmm. uh, and the cosmos was in a different incarnation. And, the evolution of consciousness and the evolution of the cosmos are the same sort of thing. You know, they're not two separate. We are not evolving inside the cosmos. The cosmos and us are evolving. Mm-hmm. We're both the same kind of thing. And so he puts this, you know, tradition of this knowledge back to earlier, earlier kinds of states of mind and consciousness. And these sort of, uh, he, unfortunate language, he talks about old moon consciousness and mm-hmm. old sun consciousness. But then he's trying to relate these, these, early states of consciousness to the hermetic tradition, which uses kind of the planets as a kind of scale. Mm. This, is, this is kind of a motif that runs through all of the sort of uh, Western tradition, whether it's Steiner, whether it's uh, Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff's ray of creation, uh, you have it in, in theosophy as well. So this is kind of a fundamental kind of archetype, this kind mm. of travel back up the planets kind of thing. And Steiner sees that and uses that as a way to, talk about these different states of consciousness Mm -hmm. now he was the head of the german branch of the theosophical society i think for about a decade and then eventually he created a a separate movement uh, called anthroposophy yes Uh, yeah that came um i mean that was 
gradually developing, but that uh, it came to a head with uh, Krishnamurti when um, Annie Besant and uh, Charles Led, uh, Ledbeater um, discovered this young boy Krishnamurti on the banks of, of, of the river and all that, and they were promoting him as the avatar of the New Age and, and this kind of thing. And um, Steiner, because of his very Christian uh, kind of grounding, um, he couldn't accept. And he was also aware of certain um, dubious uh, 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 reports about uh, Leadbeater's interest in, in young boys, which we w- wouldn't go into, but that, that turned into a whole legal scandal mm-hmm. around uh, uh, Krishnamurti there. And so this was a break, and there was a kind of uh, feud between Steiner and Annie Besant going on for a while, and they were each excommunicating each other, which sadly happens. But then he broke off taking practically all of his German followers, and then people from theosophical societies and other sort of surrounding countries. And he started what he called the Anthroposophical Society, as you say, Anthroposophy. Theosophy is the wisdom of the gods, and Anthroposophy is the wisdom of man, or of the human, we would Mm -hmm. say today. Um, And again, it is is a very human-centered, and this comes from the the Christocentrism of it, as as we would say. And, you know, Steiner had his own peculiar esoteric ideas about Christianity. I mean, uh, just like, you know, people like Blake and, 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 and uh, others, others mm-hmm. have. And, uh, but he did see the incarnation of Christ as kind of like the, the central uh, event mm-hmm. in, in human history so far. Because for him, it, it marked the lowest descent of spirit into matter. Mm-hmm. And, then it, and that, that uh, spirit starts to move back up towards the towards the higher realms. And again, in this kind of travel back up the planets sort mm-hmm. of motif. Well, the uh, interesting thing to me is that with the founding of the Anthroposophical Society, Steiner's work evolved uh, to being more than just philosophy. He became an incredible creator in architecture and uh, dance, movement, painting, medicine, uh, education. It, it, his followers regard him as the embodiment of the ideal of the Nietzschean Superman. And I think you could make a very good case for that. Well, I mean, one of the things uh, that set him apart immediately from uh, the rest of the Theosophical Society was this interest in art and culture and all this kind of thing. And um, um, even while he was still in it, there was a conference in Paris. Um, I can't forget the exact uh, I don't remember the exact year, um, but he he had met um, a Frenchman named Edouard Chouret, mm-hmm. who in the early 20th century, late 19th century, had a big bestseller called The Great Initiates. Yes. And it was a big popular book about the idea that it's ancient wisdom is handed down from sage to sage. So it's Pythagoras gives it to somebody, he gives it to Plato, Plato gives it to somebody else, and so on and so on. And it talks about Krishna and, and you know uh, Isis and a variety of other mythological uh, figures are in there and he he was completely impressed by steiner uh and he he was a dramatist as well Mm -hmm. and this is how steiner met his second wife marie von sievers who was um a friend of uh and she was a baltic russian who was an Mm -hmm. actress in the old school the old sort of declamatory uh uh, school of, of of acting um and they put together this performance um for what the conference and they also decorated the hall and all this wonderful you know painting and and color and light and all this sort of thing and the theosophists weren't really i mean they weren't really used to that kind of thing it was it was a bit more sort of sober even for all the kind of wildness around madame blavatsky who was long gone 
long gone by now. And this was something that set them apart already. And um, Snyder just kind of went for it. And when he finally broke, uh, one of the things he did was build a center for the new movement. It was mm-hmm. so, sort of a temple for the new religion that he was creating. And I, I make no mistake, I think Steiner felt the need for, and he decided he was going to try to create a new religion uh, for, for, for the modern age. And this was something that he called the Goethe Anum, which mm-hmm. was in honor of, of Goethe. And um, he originally was going to build it in Munich, but then um, something came up. And there was actually a, a large anti-Steiner there always was kind of a large anti-Steiner contingent around people that were always trying to prevent him. They saw him as a threat, uh, various different groups. So something happened and he couldn't do it in Munich, but then he was given land in Switzerland and near a place called Dornach. Mm-hmm. And there he built the Goethe Anum, And it was one of the most incredible things. Uh, this is how I first became interested in Steiner to tell you the truth. I mean, I'd seen his name in different books I read, but um, I, I, I was a, great fan of expressionist art german expressionism mm-hmm. and there was a very small school of expressionist architects who didn't build a great much uh, a great deal they, they made lots of plans but they didn't build many things one of the few things they built was something called the einstein tower that's outside of berlin uh in, in potsdam but steiner built this thing and it's, it was huge and it was it had a bigger dome than saint peter's in in rome Which and is it, it was it it's enormous. It's gigantic. It was like you know, you think of Hagia Sophia, Hagia Sophia in 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 um, Istanbul. It was mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. and it was made of wood that violins were made of, and there were no straight lines, and everything had this fantastic Art Nouveau organic kind of flowing shapes, and the shapes weren't repeated, and the the window was all you know stained glass window, and he had artists, and he was building it at the same time as World War One. And, to and, and to be clear, up. he designed this. He designed it. He 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 designed he top to bottom. He designed it, it, mm-hmm. it everything in it, and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, helped make it. Helped yeah. carve the wood. Um, mm-hmm. Painted the stained glass. Gave directions to everything on that. And this is all through his. God, I mean, he, he had all these ideas about how the shape would draw down the cosmic energies, mm-hmm. and people entering into it would feel. Just by entering into the building, they, they would feel something different. And, all I, that. I, and in I, fact, when he first, in many ways, it backfired because when he did bring people in, it was so strange to them that many of them didn't know what mm. to make of it. And my, and my first, I saw photographs of this thing. I thought, God, who made this? Who designed this? Because it was something out of some fantasy kind of, you know, uh, yeah. romantic, weird kind of novel. And suddenly it's for real. I mean, sadly, it burned down. And there's a whole story around that. Well, my sense is that through his clairvoyant vision, he had a notion of what the theosophists were calling etheric energies and mm, mm, astral mm. energies, and that uh, he, his idea was that the architecture itself, uh, as well as his form of movement called eurythmy and uh, mm, mm. the the style of painting that he developed, and uh, all, all of these... Um, endeavors were were designed to sort of bring these etheric energies into the earthly plane where they could be used productively by humans yeah yeah also and also to sort of uh stimulate a perception of what he well the super sensible mm-hmm. and again it, it didn't say entirely in-house uh people like vasily kandinsky one of the great uh originators of modern 
abstract art. He was he was a student of Steiner's, uh, other other uh, Pierre Mondrian, other other famous early abstract modern painters were influenced by these ideas. Uh, but yeah, exactly that. And um, by contemplating these colors, color was very very important for Steiner because yeah. color was something. Um, yeah. in, well, he, 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 in a way, you can say he sort of developed a kind of technique of inducing synesthesia, which is where the senses blend over. Mm-hmm. So color and sound come together. And he was and, very inspired by Goethe's work on color. Again, again, yeah, Goethe wrote, yeah, uh, Goethe had a whole book, his Farbenlehr, you know, mm-hmm. Theory of Color. Again, this is where Goethe took arms uh, against Newton. And this is, again, mm-hmm. where people are saying, poor Goethe, what is he doing? He's saying Newton's wrong? Uh, you know. But Steiner so, but no, sided with yeah. Goethe in that no, Absolutely, debate. yeah, yeah. And, and strangely enough, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, he, he said in many ways Steiner was doing something. It's not that Newton was wrong. It's that Steiner was uh, Goethe was doing something different than what Newton, yeah. Newton was doing. Mm-hmm. And what, what Goethe was trying to do, he was trying to pin down our experience of the color. Mm-hmm. Newton was saying, oh, this is how color is made. Yeah. This is what it's like, you know, material. It's all, mm-hmm. you know, the white light broken up. And for Goethe, that was no, that's not real because you're torturing the light in order to produce that effect. We don't do that in real life. In mm-hmm. our life, we don't do that. This is how we are. This is how color is for us in our life. So he was an early, what we would call a phenomenologist. Mm-hmm. He was trying to study the phenomena experiencing the color, not trying to come up with a reason for it or explain it away yeah. in terms of something. And Steiner, t- again, took that. Where we Goethe, Goethe, Goethe in many ways, Goethe sort of stopped there. He was happy with, just, okay, this is the world around me. This is nature around me. I'm not looking for anything behind it. Mm-hmm. I'm not looking for any deeper. He was spiritual, but he wasn't spiritual. And was looking. He was like, it's all here. He, Goethe said, you know, nature has neither the kernel nor shell. It's it's both. Everything is always there at all times. There's nothing hidden. And Goethe, Steiner kind of just took it and went further with it. Mm-hmm. You know, went deeper and and starts using these experiences as platforms to start to describe and enter into these spiritual mm-hmm. worlds. Because if you practice the kind of exercises that he talks about in the book you mentioned earlier, Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, one of the first things that comes across is this experience of color in your dreams. You start mm-hmm. to have dreams with stronger experiences of color, and this is supposed to be an indication that your consciousness is starting entering into the higher realms and all that. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my senses of is why Steiner was so extremely creative in this period is that he had a, a community, a large community around him, so he could work with medical people, he could work with economists, he could work with politicians, he could work with educators and uh, farmers and uh they would come to him for essentially philosophical insights and he provided it to them and, and they would run with it and, and develop uh, industries. Oh, it's just true. I mean, Steiner was one of the most practical uh, or practically successful in a practical way of, of the great esoteric teachers of the 20th century, uh, I would say. I mean, uh, one of the first things he did in that realm were the, the schools, the mm-hmm. We call them Steiner schools. It's Waldorf education. Um, and um, yeah, I just was in Stuttgart on my way somewhere else to give a con- at a conference. And Stuttgart was where the first Steiner school came up at the Waldorf Astoria Tobacco Company. Um, uh, and Steiner had her people involved in there. The owners of the company put up the money to start the school. And Steiner had a whole method, technique and methodology of education. And during his lifetime, he was known as an educationalist. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, as well as 
you know, being known as a spiritual teacher. But there's a in in, in the early twenties, he was in Manchester uh, here up up in the north, and um, along I don't remember the names, but along with other well-known educationalists at the time, and there was nothing said about his esoteric or occult ideas. They were all talking about him as educational ideas. He was up there with Montessori and all that kind of thing. Um, so that was one of the first things he did. And then after that, it, he start, it started to take on a very practical kind of um, uh, life. And that was one of the results of World War I. Uh, because um, after World War I, I was saying, Steiner, the Goethe Arnhem was built by people from all of the combating countries yeah so you had english you had germans you had you know russians you had austrians you had everybody there working so it's supposed to this you know this unified you know uh, uh symbol uh and um but after the war steiner actually he, he was a he was an important political figure for a while because mm-hmm. he wrote a book called the threefold commonwealth yeah. which was a kind of reconstruction plan for post-war europe and it became a bestseller um, on the continent in German-speaking countries, and he was lecturing on it uh, around German-speaking countries. But he also had um, anthroposophists were getting on to local, you know, election platforms to try, you know, like the Green Party today or something like that, you know, um, doing that there. And uh, he, he, again, this this started to get political opposition to him. Marxists becoming a proto kind of proto Aryan, you know, uh, proto Nazi groups coming back after world war one, feeling they got stabbed in the back and all that kind of thing. And that's a whole other story too. Steiner was accused of being responsible for Germany's loss of the war because he, uh, he gave the general (laughs) in charge the wrong advice or something like that. It's all wrong. It's all mixed up. Mm -hmm. But again, this was something that people had against them at the time. And in many ways, it seemed like whenever he started to get, a bit outside of the niche where he was into the real world forces came up to to kind of block him in some ways and there, there was assassination attempts on him later on and all that but you know from the political the educational then um with, with architect architectural painting um one of the last things in that sense uh was the biodynamic farming mm-hmm. it was the aggregate uh, uh, agricultural um, ideas he had, and today that's that's huge, that's big, and this is well ahead of you know what we what we call organic farming and all that sort of thing today. Um, and it's it's just remarkable how many of the things that they're still around, and many that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book uh, is that my children were going to a Steiner school. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, their 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 mother was very interested in it, and. Um, I kept talking to people, parents I met at, at, at it, and they didn't really know much about him. And then they also thought, you know, as I said, when they looked at the books about him, they all seemed a bit like, well, you kind of have to join the cult, kind of to like. And they they just were interested because they thought the schools were better than the state schools and all that. Yeah. And I realized there are a lot of people out there that are sort of, you know, they're in touch with Steiner's things or the schools or something else, but they don't have a general idea what he's about. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I wrote the book was to was to do that because uh, you can know him in all these different ways. And I think these days, a lot of the, how should we say it, there's a sense in which they want to kind of um, keep the more occult kind of Steiner a little bit quiet because it's a little weird compared to all the the very good things we're doing, you know, Mm -hmm. in the practical world. We're having a lot of success in this practical kinds of things. So let's, I mean, later on I had some. Uh, brushes with the sort of Steiner uh, education people here too and they were it was a little you know they weren't too happy with how I presented him in some ways but Mm -hmm. in any case that's water under the bridge
Well, one of the concepts that seems central to his thinking and to the uh, mm-hmm. mystery plays that he wrote that are yeah. currently being performed at the new Gertianum uh, after the wooden structure was burned down, they rebuilt another magnificent structure. Made of concrete. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, one of the first poured concrete buildings ever. Absolutely, yeah. It looks very modern now. I imagine it was rather shocking to people when it first uh, uh, was designed. I, I understand it has uh, the, one of the largest theaters in all of Europe, maybe outside of Moscow. And uh, But he performs mystery plays there. And as I understand them, they are centered on the concept of initiation, spiritual initiation, which was very important to his thinking. Yeah, well, yeah, Steiner, yeah, he uh, he did, he did um, think in terms of initiation. I mean, early in his career, he actually briefly, briefly uh, was a member of um, an organization called the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis, which is generally associated with Aleister Crowley. And you wouldn't think Steiner and Crowley had too much in common. Uh, but that, that, it, was, it, it was basically a Masonic organization. And Steiner felt the need for a kind of ritual. He felt the need for something like that. Um, he, he was very religious uh, when he was a young boy. He took part in the mass and all that. He grew up Catholic, even though he was accused of being Jewish by you know, different groups at different times. But he was a good Catholic, and he, he, he was sort of an you know, altar boy and all that kind of thing. So he had a per- he, personal like and, and a respect for ritual and all that kind of thing. And um, the mystery plays, yeah, they were supposed to induce that kind of sense of awe, mystery, uh, holy terror to some mm-hmm. degree. Uh, I don't know how successful they are. I mean, again, um, Stein, this is one aspect where it, it can come across as a bit solemn. It could come across as a bit sort of like, uh, you know, Sunday schoolish. As a very, mm-hmm. it's, it's, um, this, I think, sadly was the influence of, of, of his second wife, Marie von Sievers, because um, she came from an old school of acting. I mean, the time when Steiner was uh, editing literary magazines and things of that sort, uh, this was like the, the people like uh, Strindberg and Ibsen, uh, Bernard Shaw, others like that, where it was much more modern, it was much mm-hmm. more about modern events, and you know, much more people could relate to it rather than this more theatrical kind of thing but marie von sievers was more in that school and i think steiner influenced by that um so but i, I would imagine being performed in the goethe Arnhem, and they generally have you know bruckner or beethoven or some you know tremendous classical music in the background i would think it would be you know mm-hmm. have that a kind of effect that he would want to have just like the building itself should have an effect on you. I would think mm-hmm. that performance would do that. But there were certain stages um, of initiation Steiner uh, had and having to do with different sort of modes of consciousness that, that mm-hmm. we can develop. And sort of imagination, intuition, and inspiration. I think was sort of that. From some, I think that's the kind of mm-hmm. uh, the sequence. And um, he follows that pattern in a variety of different exercises that he, mm-hmm. he talks about in books like Knowledge of the Higher Worlds and others like that. But art was supposed to be one of the ways to initially get it going, to get the imagination going. He refers to uh, an experience uh, that he calls the uh, encounter with the guardian of the threshold, which is like this very fierce being. I've always assumed that the, this guardian of the threshold is like your own Jungian shadow that you have to confront. Yes, yes, it is something. It's it's a, it's, it's sort of the accumulated, uh, unresolved karma of of some way 
that confronts you on the path. Mm -hmm. And he actually got the idea uh, from a novel um, by a 19th century English writer named Bulwer Lytton. Um, oh, yes. Who, who, who wrote uh, The Last Days of Pompeii. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wrote a fantastic uh, esoteric novel called Zanoni, which is mm -hmm. about Rosicrucianism. But he's, he's also best known <laughs> uh, for you know, writing the, the worst opening line of a book. It was a dark and stormy night. Yeah. So he's one of these 19th century kind of overwritten writers. But in, in Zanoni, um, there is this encounter with what I think they call it the dweller on the threshold in, mm -hmm. in the book. And it's on the Rosicrucian path, you encounter this your darkness, you encounter, you know, all, all, all of that part of yourself that you've not, you know, yet resolved, you've not yet refined and all this kind of thing. And yeah, this is something very much like the, like the Jungian shadow. And this is something that you had to, um, meet on, on the way. And unless you pass that, you know, and again, I get in various other traditions, it's like that. It's, it's, uh, all of the, darkness all the parts of ourselves that we are either unaware of or are aware of but refuse to acknowledge in any kind of real way mm -hmm. and uh yes yeah, this is something very powerful and and blavatsky talks about it as well and i think in different ways um bulward lytton's contribution to this isn't as well known as, as it should be because he had, he himself was actually a very serious psychic investigator you, you probably know like his early mm -hmm. book the house uh the haunted and the haunter it's it's uh, fictional but he it's in many ways based on an account he actually of something he actually went through going mm -hmm. to a haunted house and trying to he was sort of like early x files person one of the earliest kind of scientific investigators of this sort of thing yeah now steiner as i recall died in 1925 uh, which would mean there are probably very few if any people alive today who actually knew him when when I was a young man and first encountered uh, anthroposophy, I actually met people who had known Steiner, but uh, they've mm. they've passed on at this point. Uh, and it strikes me, uh, you know, from our contemporary perspective, that while Steiner was uh, an enormously important person in in the history of Western esotericism. Uh, there's a sense in which the movement he founded has become a bit crystallized mm -hmm. uh, at the time of his death. I, uh, I, I don't get the sense that the, there's an ongoing evolution within the anthroposophical community. Well, I think that's something that's true of um, quite a few of uh, what we might call old school uh, spiritual teachings or esoteric teachings. At least it's something I've come across here in London, because um, I've written a book on Steiner, written a book on uh, Swedenborg, yep. uh, written a book on Uspensky, you know, mm -hmm. from the Gurdjieff Uspensky work, um, and others. And um, the general average age of people coming to these things is tending to be in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I just was, they said, I just was at a conference in, in Germany. Uh, it was a different group. It was a Rosicrucian group, but most of the people there were around that, that sort of age. And... Um, I think, um, yeah, there's a certain, I think this is one of the things that happens in the esoteric world is that you have the leader and then you have people come after and they're often more royal than the king. Mm -hmm. If you know what I mean, they often feel like, you know, they, they have to somehow codify and, and make, make solid just the, just say in the same way that the second Goethe Anum was concrete and here yeah. it is and it's not moving and a tank isn't going to get through this thing, you know, uh -huh. uh, sort of very, very similarly. Um, but I, I found more recently that 
these places are trying to open up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there's Rudolf Steiner House here uh, in in London. Uh, again, it's designed anthroposophically. Mm-hmm. It's not as big as the Goethe Arnhem, but you can see once you're inside and you can see on the outside yeah. all, all of these motifs. And they've been reaching out uh, to get um, new people in. Mm-hmm. And the same is true at the uh, Swedenborg Society. Uh, they have a lovely building uh, in Bloomsbury, part of London, uh, an old Georgian building, and they've been opening up the, the, the space to new sorts of things. So I think people are reaching out, but it's kind of difficult uh, these days because I think there's a lot of competition mm-hmm. and there's a lot of uh, other things out there. But I, I did want to say I actually did meet one person who met Steiner, mm-hmm. uh, and this, this was Owen Barfield, and I mentioned him earlier, and he's not that well-known, but he was one of the Inklings. Uh, he was also a friend of C.S. Lewis and a friend of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, mm. and they, they were a group of writers and poets who met in a pub in Oxford um, in the 40s and talked about poetry and mythology and all this sort of thing. Uh, but Barfield met Steiner very briefly, when Steiner came to London um, for a talk once in the, I think, the year he died or just before he died. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and I interviewed uh, Owen Barfield 1997. This was the year before he died. And I think he died, I think he was 104. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, no, sorry. No, no, no. He wasn't. He just, just turned 100. I'm thinking, thinking of some, something else. Uh, he, he just turned 100. So he, <laughs> you know, he had, would have had to have been that old for, you know, him to, you know, yeah. me to have met him at, at this late age. And so that was one of the, you know, mm-hmm. uh, interesting things to have met somebody from that time. But, uh, yeah, it, it is true. I, I think uh, it's difficult. But one of the things I do when I give these talks at these different places, I also say, well, the Steinerites, you should talk to the Swedenborgians, and the Swedenborgians, you should talk to the Jungians, and all three of you, you should talk to the Gurdjieffians, and mm-hmm. talk to some of these other people, too. And instead of, you know, kind of holding your own, mm-hmm. protecting your little patch, well, you know, come it, together and find where you have things to share, because that's it, the only way any of these ideas are going to get across into the broader culture in any kind of real serious way. It's all happening inside of your mind. Well, absolutely. I'm, well, yeah. I'm trying to do that. I'm trying you to are. do that. I'm, in, I'm trying in, to. I'm trying. I'm trying to show. Well, this is yeah. like that. And okay, does it? And again, you don't have to buy every to get something out of Steiner. You don't have to buy everything. Yeah. It's it's not. It's like you can pick and choose. I mean, people have said, well, you you basically you you focus on his his early. I focus a lot on the Goethe period because mm-hmm. I think in many ways philosophically, and that's my interest. I'm. Yeah. I'm, I'm well, Gary, I think you and I have uh, one thing in common, which is this sensibility that we are the inheritors of all of the world's esoteric traditions. And I think we have a, a responsibility to uh, make an effort to digest them and to pass on uh, that synthesis. Absolutely. And, and also to bring it into the mainstream conversation i mean you know goethe influenced steiner well goethe is part of the mainstream you know Mm -hmm. conversation and we all know people like william james and Henri bergson from the early 20th century or late 19th century these are famous nobel prize winners william james famous american philosopher and psychologist he was deeply interested in all this sort of stuff you know Mm -hmm. mysticism and And he wasn't afraid to talk about it out in the open and all that kind of thing now if you mention it you 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 lose your tenure at some kind of uh, academy or something. That's un- very unfortunate, but I know Steiner still is influential. Saul Bellow, for example. Uh, Absolutely. The great novelist uh, uh, was uh, very devoted to Steiner. Yeah, he was. In fact, Bellow uh, engaged in a kind of correspondence course in Steiner with Owen Barfield. Ah. And, uh, and I think it was uh, Humboldt's gift 
is yeah. the novel is where he talks about practicing some of the Steiner exercises and things of that sort. And uh, he was also interested in uh, Schwala de Lubitsch, mm. Sol, Sol Bello. He wrote an uh-huh. introduction to uh, a biography of, of de Lubitsch. So again, these ideas, they're there, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I, I, I think it is important to find the kind of, you know, minimum working hypothesis, let's say, that they all kind of share yeah. that, you know, we, we can all come away from. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a great deal of Stein, like his, the, the Christocentrism of Steiner stuff. I, you know, it, it doesn't bother me one way or the other, but it, I, I don't feel you really have to accept that in mm-hmm. order to understand what he means about imaginative perception or, mm-hmm. you know, imagination as a form of knowledge. You, you can you can get that without having to accept and you don't have to accept all the stuff about Lemuria or Atlantis and all that kind of stuff either. It's fun to read, but it doesn't have to be exactly like that. You know, so. Well, I, it's very interesting, uh, Steiner's uh, theology, where he puts together a trinity of Christ, Lucifer, and, and the uh, Persian deity, Araman. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, this is, yeah, yeah. I mean, he sees... He's, he's, in general, he kind of sees a polarity at work between Lucifer and Ahriman, and, and you can say Lucifer is uh, kind of uh, overweening pride and the sense of um, I could do it alone, and you know, kind mm-hmm. of you know, uh, Trump is very uh, Luciferic, we could say, very self-confident kind of thing. And Ahriman is very heavy; it's it's materialist, it's kind of dull, uh, it, it, it's basically keeping everything in kind of conformity. And between the two, it's a figure that Steiner calls the represent, representative of humanity which is christ mm-hmm. and it's supposed to be the unification of these two polarities mm-hmm. and uh and they work in different ways and again that that whole motif is across the board in steiner's ideas you, you, you see it a lot in the, in the anthroposophical medicine mm-hmm. uh, the difference between sort of inflammation and sclerosis you know there's either you're too hot or you're too you know co- cold and hard and it's kind of and you can see that in indian rajas and tattvas and all that kind of stuff as well so it mm-hmm. puts it together but yeah this is this is a fundamental kind of polarity um, and Steiner saw, well, he, he had a vision of the coming age, the coming century, and it's, God, it's almost 100 years now since he died. Uh, not quite, but almost. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, the West, something was going to happen between the West and Russia. So there was, there was some, uh, Russia was supposed to be able to somehow come up with uh, this third way that was going to, oh, actually, yeah, between the West and the East. And you have the, the West and, you know, and then the East, and Russia was supposed to somehow some way to unify these kinds of things. And he, he was very influential in Russia. And mm-hmm. um, uh, there's a famous lecture he gave. Uh, it wasn't in Russia, it was in Paris in about 1906. But the, the, the creme de la creme of the Russian intelligentsia were at this, at this lecture. And anthroposophy was very, very influential, even up until the revolution, and even after the revolution for a couple of years. Uh, there were anthroposophical groups trying to work with the Bolsheviks and the early Soviets and all mm-hmm. this kind of thing. But Steiner had high hopes for something new to emerge out of Russia in the early 20th century to somehow find a middle way between the East and the West. And then it was cut short by, by the Bolsheviks coming in. Yeah. And he was, he, he thought um, there was a Russian philosopher named Vladimir Soloviev, uh, who was very influential. Dostoevsky was a friend of his. And he had this whole idea, this integral kind of philosophy bringing together, you know, both, you know, what mm-hmm. we were talking about. And oddly enough, he is on Vladimir Putin's reading list these days. Oh. A few years ago, Vladimir Putin gave out to his regional governors a, a, a list of books they should read. And one of them was a book called The Justification of the Good 
by Solovyev. And it's, it's, you know, it's this. It's mm-hmm. like that. It's a doorstopper. And in, in it, he, he articulates very clearly this whole philosophy of, of, of integration of, mm-hmm. of these two kind of opposites and all that. So I find it kind of interesting that about 100 years later, you know, from when all that, that attempt to, you know, present this new way was cut short by the Bolsheviks. It's mm-hmm. coming up a bit now. You know? Well, I think it's important to realize that, that Steiner's concept you referred to earlier of the threefold social order mm. nearly became the blueprint for uh, the German government. Instead, they adopted the uh, Weimar Republic. Yes, uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, these again, these are these ideas go back to Plato. I mean, the threefold sort of idea goes back to sort of Platonic, uh, well, the Republic and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So, um, no, no, it, it, it again, if you know, if, if you go back and you look at what was happening just after the war in Europe, uh, Steiner was incredibly popular. That idea could have got picked up. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd say in the book, there were some some lectures where the, you know, the the, the queue or the line went out the door and around the block and all that and traffic was stopped and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So he was the man of the hour for a while. So for people who are interested in the integration of a mystical or idealistic perspective with the practical affairs of the world, yeah. uh, it is very uh, worthwhile to study Steiner. Absolutely. And his influence goes on uh, mm-hmm. even uh, even today. As I say, yeah. there's many, many um, biodynamic farms yeah. um, in yeah. Europe, uh, in England, the schools. Uh, they've come into a little... Um, bit of friction here lately with the health and safety uh, kind of mania, but I think they're still uh, going strong. I believe um, the Waldorf school system is the second largest private school system in the world. Yes, it is. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's enormous. I mean, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's, it's uh, produced, you know, uh, quite a lot of, uh, uh, you know, good people that go back out into mm-hmm. the world and actually try to, you know, it, it, again, it goes back in some ways, to Plato's ideas in the mm-hmm. sense that education should be about producing a good, rounded person who mm-hmm. could go out and take an active role yeah. in the society they live in. You know, And I think that's something that the Steiner schools aim at. Mm-hmm. I was very struck when I was a young man in my early 20s. I encountered the Anthroposophical Society in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And there <laughs> I met uh, a, a young woman. Uh, who had gone through the Waldorf schools her whole life. And I was really struck because she was physically, I would have described her as very unattractive, but there was something about, I would call it her etheric energy, which made her extremely attractive to me. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Well, she probably had, uh, yeah, something going there. Her, 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 uh, astral body. <laughs> I, well, out, and, and I sense the right signals, yeah. something yeah. about the Waldorf education. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's well, I think it. It, 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 it's about it's about unifying. It's also about. I mean, one of the strange things they do, strange by normal standards, is that they don't teach reading until the age of seven. Yeah. And this for Steiner has something to do with the the second set of teeth coming in. Yeah. And uh, actually, I recently saw some neurological reason for that, and I should have noted it down. Mm-hmm. I can't don't remember it now, but I, there was something about reading they- and the teeth that. Some, there is some neurological connection, and I don't see how Steiner could have known this. It's something he must have just known from um, experience, because you know he was a tutor for mm-hmm. many years. Yes, and and one, he, he tells a story where he, he he cured a boy who was mentally retarded. Uh, he was hydrocephalic. He was someone who had water on the brain. Um, he was you know couldn't read, couldn't write, couldn't do anything. And not only did he educate this boy, but he went on to sort of become. I think he took on a sort of very important role in 
the social service or something. Or he something became like a that. medical so, doctor. As yeah, I exactly. Yeah, I a doctor. I figure out. So yeah. find, it's incredible. I mean, patience, patience, patience is one of like you know the key word for Steiner. Mm-hmm. He was infinitely patient, infinitely solicitous, and I think this is what killed him in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, he couldn't say no to people. So and everybody would come up to him and ask him, you know, should I do this? Should I do that? What about this? What about that? And he, he wasn't able to say no. And I think after a while, it just they took, mm-hmm. you know, little bits from him. And there wasn't anything left. But he had infinite amount of patience. And again, in that book, Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, and one of the simplest things he does is sort of to say, develop a sense of reverence, mm-hmm. develop a sense of, you know, of, of uh, appreciation of things. Yeah. And so, you know, that kind of thing. You can see that he did that, you know, yeah. and um there's something saintly about him almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a there's an interesting book by the psychologist Anthony Storr that came out about 20 years ago called um, Feet of Clay. That was what it was called here. I don't know what it was called in, in the States. But it was the study of gurus. Yeah. And um, he had lots good to say about Steiner. At the same time, he recognized that, as I'd say in the book, it's hard to kind of pin down somebody who has a very cogent criticism of Kant on one page, and next page he's talking about Lemuria or Atlantis. Yeah. And it's saying, yeah. Well, that makes an incredible amount of sense, but I quite, don't quite know what to make of this. And Storr was sort of stymied by that as well, but he said, but I, I can find nothing bad to say about yeah. this man. This man was just an infant, gentle character who, who did nothing but give. Well, I, I've had the same impression of, of Steiner, and I, I regard him as, as one of the most influential people in my own uh, evolution. Uh, well, Gary, thank you so much for sharing all of this. This has been well, so stimulating and, and delightful. I look forward to many more conversations like this with you. Oh, well, thank you, Jeffrey, for having me on. It's been wonderful. And uh, yes, let's, let's do it again. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Great to be with you. Thank you.